Well, the funny thing is we just read Esther chapter 2. When you read the, the Esther stories and the kids' Bible story books, you ever notice they sound a little bit different than what we just read? I mean, like, when you read in the, in the kids' Bible story books, like, there's this, like, romantic dream that every Disney princess would be proud of, right? Where there's the beauty pageant and the Churchill, church girl, she goes and she sings and everybody claps for her. And then the church girl wins the competition because she has such great character. And so then, of course, because she has all this great character, later she goes before the king and she uh, approaches him and saves God's people because she has such great character. And that's the story of Esther, right? I mean, I mean, this is a story that we get into because we love an underdog story, right? Like, we love it. We love the rags to riches story. So we've got this Christian girl, and she's poor, but she loves God. And then God uses that and makes her queen so she can save God's people. And that's a great story. The problem is, that romantic dream is not what we just read in Esther chapter 2, right? Like, when we read that chapter, we're reading about moral failures. We're reading about spiritual compromise. This isn't a fairy tale where the Jewish uh, young girl falls in love with Prince Charming and it's a happily ever after story. It's a pretty sordid tale. And what happens is oftentimes when we look at the Bible, we, we view the Bible through a lens, through a filter. And it's not just, it's not just in the kids' Bibles, but we, we, we approach this when you and I read Scripture. And so we have this filter that says, okay, there's good guys and there's bad guys. The good guys, those are the people that God uses. Those are the people that God blesses. Those are the people that God loves. And the bad guys, well, they're the people that God doesn't use. They're the people that God doesn't bless. They're the people that God doesn't love. And so it skews how we read the Bible. We even begin to take our faith and say, well, Christianity is all about me being a good person. And so it skews how we do church. It skews how we follow after God, right? Because when I look at the Bible heroes, I look through my entire Bible. I've got all these heroes that I look up to. The assumption is all these people were good, right? I mean, Abraham, Abraham, that was a man of faith, right? That was a great man of faith. Oh, except for the fact there's that time Actually, twice, where he gave his wife to another man. Like, what am I supposed to do with that? He's a good guy. He can't do anything bad. We look at Noah. Like, that man had such tremendous faith. Like, he built a boat in the middle of a desert. What a man of great faith. Except for the, we kind of skip over the story that happens when he gets off the boat. He gets drunk and he gets naked. And then he curses his son who tries to cover up his nakedness. Like, that's in the Bible. That's part of Noah's story. But we don't like to read that part of Noah's story, right? I mean, David, David was a man after God's own heart. Like we want to be men and women after God's own heart. And David, that's what he was. He was a man after God's own heart. He was also a man after another woman, another man's wife. And he was also a man who killed that man and took the wife at the end of the story, right? Like this is our Bible stories. These are not the stories that we read to our kids at bedtime. These are not the stories that they put in the kids' Bible storybook. But this is the the scriptures. This is what we read. And so here, when we look at Esther, again, if we're going to have that, that, that lens, that filter of good guys and bad guys, like we look at Xerxes, like most of us would agree Xerxes was a bad guy. Anybody think he was a good guy? No, we all think Xerxes, yeah, he's, he's, he's a pretty bad dude. But Esther, 
I mean, Esther, she, God uses her at the end of the book. God uses her in a tremendous way. She's got to be a good person, right? So what I want to do this morning is I'm going to look at Esther chapter 2 without a lens, with no filter. Let's just allow God's word to, to speak to us and watch as it begins to shift our perspective about the good guys and the bad guys and the way that scripture actually works. So Esther chapter 2, starting at verse 1, starts out and it says, And after these things, okay, there is a span of four years between Esther chapter 1 and Esther chapter 2. Esther chapter 1 occurred uh, in the third year of King Xerxes' reign. And then uh, verse 16 of chapter 2 tells us that this occurs in the seventh year of his reign. There's a four-year gap. And what happens in that four-year gap, history will tell us that Xerxes assembles the largest army that was on the face of the earth. There are some estimates that the army ranged between 300 to 500,000 warriors. And the high side of that, there are estimates that it ranged over a million warriors on his army. And so he gathers his army and he marches into Greece because he's going to defeat the Greeks and he's going to supersede the greatness of his father. Again, this is a guy who's all about his reputation, all about what people think of him. He's going to be greater than his father. So he marches into Greece and he suffers a humiliating defeat. I mean, just terrible. I mean, he, he, his odds should have been in his favor and he suffers this horrible defeat and he comes home licking his wounds. And verse one says that, after his anger had abated, he's lost. He remembered Vashti and what he had decreed. Remember what happened last, last week? He called Vashti. Uh, I want you to come. I want to show you off to all the people to show how great I am. And his wife said no. And so what does he do? He punishes her. And he banishes her from his presence. Says, you're no longer the queen. Four years later, his anger is abated. He's no longer mad. And now he remembers her. Listen, how many of you have ever been there? Right? You've been in that moment where, where you, had, you got angry, you got frustrated. This is why anger is such a big deal. Because when we're angry and frustrated, we make rash decisions. We say words that we don't really mean. Things that oftentimes we're going to regret a little bit later. And I think that's where you see King Xerxes. He's lonely. He's come home licking his wounds, his tail between his legs. What's going to happen? Verse 2. Verse 2 says, the king's young men, his attendants, okay, said, hey, king, this is what we need to do. You're sad. You're lonely. Let's find you a new queen. And here's, here's the qualifications for the king. Verse 2 says, all the girls who are beautiful young virgins, those are the qualifications to be the new queen, it says, let's go throughout the entire kingdom. Let's gather all the girls that fit those three criteria. Let's bring them to the harem, which is a place where the king would keep his concubines or maybe his girlfriends or whatever you want to call them. Let's give them makeovers. And the girl who, who uh, pleases the king best, she will be the new queen. Right? See, what's amazing is, is 2,500 years later, like, we have a TV show based on the very same idea, do we not? Where you gather all the young, the beautiful girls, and the guy gets to choose whichever one he likes best. Like, times change, nations change, rulers change. But human nature stays the same, does it not? Now, what's the king to do? His young men say, hey, let's do this. Let's bring all these girls. You can interview them. 
And whichever one you choose will be the queen. What's the king to say? (laughs) Yes, let's do this. Let's go right now. Start, go. Two things I want you to, to notice just from those couple of verses. Number one, you'd think that the king could afford better counseling, right? Like he's the king, the richest man of the world. You'd think that the young men who are his attendants probably are not the best people for him to be seeking advice from, right? I think the reality is we can all sympathize with where Xerxes is, right? Like we've all been there where where maybe we're struggling, we're getting down a little bit. Maybe we're struggling because of our own sin like Xerxes, or maybe we're just in a difficult season of life. And in that moment, we become vulnerable, vulnerable and susceptible to bad advice. This is why we need to be very careful who we confide in. You need to be very careful who you receive counsel from. Because if we are not seeking counsel from godly people, if we are not seeking godly counsel, listen, we are ripe for bad advice. I think exactly where King Xerxes find himself right now. Second thing I want you to see from that. Again, verse 2, you see Xerxes, or verse 1. You almost see a little bit, maybe a hint of regret. His anger has abated. Oh yeah, now I'm going to remember Vashti and what I had decreed to her. It's kind of like one of those things where, where maybe there's remorse, maybe there's bitterness, whatever it is. But what are you going to do with it? I mean, is he going to repent? Is he going to try and make things right? Is he going to seek God? Is he going to try and change? No, he's going to let his, his lust ignite his flesh. Right? Isn't this what we do? Where when we recognize, maybe I did something wrong here. Maybe I shouldn't have done that. But to avoid the guilt, we try and ignore it. We try and bury the guilt. And so instead of getting right with God, instead of making things right, we invest in chunky monkey ice cream stock, right? Or we, we, we bury our guilt under uh, the bottle. Or we, we begin a new relationship and kind of forget what happened with the first. Or, or maybe we get angry where we don't really deal with the guilt, We don't remove the guilt. We just bury it. And some idea, hey, it sounds like a good life, but you ever met someone in that spot that were trying to bury their guilt? I'm going to guess that Xerxes probably wasn't a very good man, probably wasn't very happy with where he was in life because he just buried the guilt instead of repenting and, and trying to make things right. So they come up with this competition. Hey, let's do The Bachelor. Let's make The Bachelor Persian edition way back when. Find a new queen. And here we're going to meet the heroes of the story. Verse 5. It says, Now there was a Jew in Susa, the Cytosil, whose name was Mordecai. Mordecai is one of our heroes. And the author, as he introduces Mordecai, he wants us to be very clear to understand Mordecai was a Jew. He was an Israelite. He was one of God's people. And he goes through a great length to say, yeah, here's his dad and his dad's dad and his dad's dad's dad. And he goes through the history to say he was part of the people who were taken captive by King Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 7, it says that, that Mordecai, you know, one of the things about him is he's going to raise Esther. Uh, in that society, uh, when a child was orphaned, the nearest male relative would assume uh, legal guardianship of that, of, of that, of that child. And so... Uh, Mordecai, his uncle, and, and I guess aunt and uncle, had a daughter. They both died. Her name was Esther. And so uh, Mordecai raises Esther. Verse 7, I, uh, excuse me, verse 11, uh, I think really cool to see. Uh, it shows his affection for Esther, where it says that when she goes off to be a part of the competition, that he checks in on her daily. And this guy, he loves her. 
He, he cares for her. He's, he's devoted to this girl that he's raised. And again, this is where I want us to recognize that sometimes our filter skews how we look at these heroes of the Bible, how we look at Mordecai. Because here's, here's what Scripture tells us as a whole, okay? Mordecai and Esther, their family, were part of the captives that were taken captive to Babylon by King Nebuchadnezzar, right? I mean, that's the book of Daniel, if you want to read that story. Persia ends up coming in. They conquer Babylon. And in, and in the year 538 BC, King Cyrus issues a decree and says, listen, if you're an Israelite, if you're a Jew, you can go back to Jerusalem. You can rebuild the city. You can rebuild the temple, which was significant because that is where the presence of God resided. That is where worship happened was at the temple. You can read about that story in Ezra and in Nehemiah. Now, what happened is King Cyrus, he issues this decree, and some of those Jews, they do. They're obedient. They go back to Jerusalem. And some of those Jews, they stay in Persia. I mean, you think about this. You know, it had been a couple generations since they'd been taken captive. So Mordecai, he, he grew up in Jerusalem. It was, it was, or he grew up in Persia. It was normal for him. That society, he was comfortable. I don't want to go back there. In fact, the, 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 Distance, the, the journey between Persia and Jerusalem would have been about 900 miles. Now, I tell you what, on Friday, my wife and I, we went snowshoeing three miles uphill both ways. It was all uphill. I can't imagine having to travel 900 miles on foot. Like, anybody want to sign up for that? Like, I've heard of 50 milers. I don't hear about 900 milers. No, thank you. So when you look at this story, like, like Mordecai has made a choice. He's made a choice. Hey, I'm going to stay in what's easy. I'm going to stay in what's comfortable. I'm not going to go back to the place where I can worship God, where I can be intimate with God, where I can be close to him. I'm going to stay right where I'm at. I mean, if you were to ask Mordecai, Mordecai would be the guy who said, yeah, I believe in God. But I'm not really walking with him. I'm not really close to him. I'm not really living for him. I'm not really obeying. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not an atheist, but I'm just not really on fire for God either. Like, how many of you that's been your story? Just honestly, how many of you that is your story right now? Like, yeah, like, yeah, I'm on team Jesus. Like, I get it. I want to be on team Jesus, not team Satan. I'm on team Jesus, but I'm not really living for him either. Like, I believe in God. But if you were to take me to court and have my faith examined to show how much I actually follow Christ, really there wouldn't be much evidence of my faith and my belief in God. See, that's Mordecai. That's where Mordecai is at. In verse 7, we're introduced to the other hero of the story, Esther. Verse 7 says, he was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther. What's interesting is the book of Esther actually gives Esther two names. Gives her the name of Hadassah and Esther. Hadassah is her Jewish name. It means Myrtle the turtle. Uh, uh, Esther is her Persian name. And that means star. And so here you kind of see this. Where these two different names that they call her by. Where she's, she's Hadassah. She's a child of God. She's a citizen of God's kingdom. But she's also known as Esther. The pretty Persian girl who's about to be swept away by a pretty evil king. You see Esther with these two dual identities, where she kind of lives in both realms. She's kind of got a foot in, in either side, 
where she kind of, she belongs to God, but she also, she fits in to the culture and the world around her. She blends into what everybody else is doing. There's nothing that would make her stand out as being a follower of God. And in fact, when Mordecai suggests, hey, Esther, you should probably uh, betray your heritage and hide your face so nobody else knows, you don't see any hint of resistance from Esther. There's no, Mordecai, I can't do that. I love... No, there's no resistance. She just goes along with it. And again, isn't, there, isn't this where most of us often find ourselves, right? We're, we're, we're Christians. We're told to be in the world, but not of the world. But honestly, don't a lot of us kind of live these double lives? Where we're, we're sort of Christian, but we're also sort of non-Christian. Where we're, we're kind of obeying what God calls us to, and kind of... Not obeying what God has called us to. Where we are, are privately, oh, I believe in God. I worship him. But publicly, like, like who really knows because of the way that we live? The reality is there's a lot of us who struggle. And how do we bridge the gap between believing and belonging to God and yet living in the world? Man, it's a struggle. And again, this is one of the things where I will say again and again, this is why I love reading the Bible. Because that pressure to conform, that pressure to conform that so many of us feel in here today, that pressure to conform that doesn't just fit for teenagers, but fits for every one of us. The Bible is not silent on those matters. In fact, you look at the story of Esther and Mordecai, and they face the same dilemma that you and I face, that pressure to conform. It reminds me that God is not indifferent to the struggles that you and I face. That balancing act we're trying to figure out, And the Bible speaks directly to that through the story of Esther and Mordecai. Verse 12, it begins to introduce us to the competition. Competition time. Cameras are rolling. The bachelor's on. So it says that there is a a 12-month makeover. Now, what's interesting about this makeover is is if you've ever had like an oil diffuser where you put the little essential oils in and it kind of makes it all smelly. Imagine being put in a sauna with uh, that oil going on. For six months, you've got this oil going in and it's going to make you smell all nice and pretty. And the other thing they did during this 12-month makeover time is they would fatten up the girls. They'd give them a lot of fatty foods because in that culture and that society, beauty was defined as a little bit beefier than our society. And so they give the girls 12 months makeover, gets them all all ready to go. And after the 12 months, the text says that each of them, they take what they want before the king. Now, I I think about some of these girls, 15, I mean, are they taking their teddy bear with them to go? Like, they're just kids. So after the 12 months, they each take whatever they want. And then they get to go on a date with the king, right? Like, he's going to take them out to dinner. Uh, they're going to go dancing. They're going to go play miniature golf. Like, maybe the king will say, well, let's go get coffee. And, and let, me, let, me, let me hear about your dreams and your fears and your aspirations for life. I mean, that's what the text says, right? Nope. Verse 14 says, Every one of these girls, at evening, would go into the king's bedroom. And morning, they would go back out. I like, we don't have to speculate on what's happening. The king wants one thing from these girls. There's one thing that matters to him. Here's how it works. There, there's a line. Two, three, four hundred girls deep. 
There's 400 girls. You're given a number. You're number 250. And when your number is called, and you go into the king's bedroom at night, and in the morning, you go back out and you go to a different harem full of the concubines. And if the king liked you, if the king uh, liked what happened that night, if he calls you by name to come back, you can come back before the king. And if not, then you're going to go and spend your entire life in this harem. You can't ever leave. You can't get married. You are at the beck and call of the king. Again, like some of these girls are 15, 16, 17. I mean, they're kids. They're kids. They have a one-night audition to do something. Otherwise, their life is spent in obscurity in a harem. Verse 16 is Esther's turn. She made friends with a manager, Haggai, who's managing the, the harem. The guy knows the king. And so he, she, he, he takes some recommendations and says, all right, if you're going to go to the king, here's what I recommend you take with him. And verses six, verse 17, after Esther spends the night with the king, it says that he loved her more than all of the others and that he won grace and favor in the king's sight. I want us to be careful with that word. Because the text says that he loved her more than all of the other girls. Be careful with that word love, right? Because love can mean so many different things. Like, like, I love tacos, and I love my wife. Now, I hope that my love for those two things are different. Like, if my love for tacos is the same as my love for my wife, that's pretty jacked up. Just say that. Whatever happens, the king spends one night with Esther, and she wins. She wins the competition. He sets the royal crown on her head. He throws a party. You ever notice, uh, as you read through this book, King Xerxes is good at throwing parties. Like, he likes his parties. He throws a big party. He wants to introduce everybody. Hey, here's the new queen. Let me introduce her. It's a national holiday. Everybody come out and celebrate. Meet Esther. And this is why they say that Esther is the hardest book to interpret. As you look at the Bible, Esther is one of the most difficult books to interpret because all the author does is gives us the facts, gives us the details. Here's what happened. Here's what happened. We aren't given, we aren't told about any of Esther's thoughts. We're not told how she felt. We're not told her motives. We're not told her intentions. We're just given the facts. And so again, because God uses Esther at the end, what we like to do is assume, well, she was a good girl. She's a good person. And so we begin to excuse and cover up her actions, right? Where, where we say, well, Esther, there's no way she slept with the king. I mean, no, she, she's a good girl. They were playing board games. They were watching uh, Bird Box on Netflix. Like, like, she wouldn't have done that. The text doesn't say that. The text says that she went in to the king's bedroom like every other girl went in. And the morning she came out and she had pleased the king more than any other girl. I mean, just think. Like, what do you have to do to stand out? What do you have to do to please the king more than anyone else? Some of us will justify and say, well, well, she was forced to do that. Like, she didn't have, uh, she didn't have any other choice. She had to go and spend the night with the king. And so that justifies what she did. Again, the text doesn't necessarily say that. The text does say that she was taken to the king's harem, whether that was by compulsion or not. We're not told. But I think 
Esther, if she wanted to, she could have said no. She could have said no. I mean, sure, she made a face a consequence. You know, and maybe she would have faced a consequence or maybe her life was taken from her. But you know, when we read stories in the Bible of people who stand up against wicked people and they suffer consequences, like we, we call that bold. We call those people martyrs. And we try and live our life like them. In fact, the last woman to tell the king no, all that happened to her is she was banished from his presence. So there's no indication in this text that she would have been severely punished if she would have said, hey, king, I'm not coming into your bedroom tonight. Again, let's just be honest with what this text says. When I've got a little girl 11 years old, as my wife and I are trying to teach her virtue, I'm not pointing to Esther chapter 2 and say, honey, you need to be like that. I'm not telling her, sweetie, make yourself as beautiful as possible to attract powerful men. I'm not telling her to use your body to advance God's kingdom because, you know, the ends justify the means. I'm not pointing to Esther chapter 2 and say, honey, you need to be like that. See, Esther chapter 2 is about a girl with a dual identity. A girl who, who says she belongs to God, who says she loves God, but she also looks very much just like the world around her. When we meet Esther in Esther chapter 2, she's not very godly. She's not at all. Again, as we read the book of Esther, we see that the, at the end of the book, God uses her in a tremendous way. She's changed. And so at some point, you kind of get this idea that she met God somewhere in between here. She got serious about her faith, and she has changed. This is called the process of sanctification. That the longer we walk with God, the more we become like him, and we begin to change to reflect our relationship with him. See, this is why I think it's important for us to read this text without a lens, without a filter. Because, in fact, when I read the Bible, the entire Bible, it's not filled with good guys And God uses them because they're good guys. No, the Bible is filled with bad guys, with sinners, with people that God redeems. And God does tremendous things through those bad guys, right? I mean, just just look at your heroes. Abraham, he lied. Noah, he got drunk. Jacob, he deceived. Moses, he got angry. David committed adultery and murder. Uh, Peter betrayed I mean, these are the heroes that we look up to for our faith. And this is what we're going to see throughout the entire book and through this chapter. is that God providentially and powerfully works through flawed and broken people. That God takes the bad guys of the world, the broken people who screwed up, and he uses them for his glory and our good. Esther, at the very least, she's guilty of compromise and sexual failure. And God took that, and God used that, and God saved a, a, a holocaust from happening because of her. I mean, just honestly, how many of you have a story that's like Esther? Yeah, I've broken some commandments. Yeah, I've kind of lived with a foot in both worlds where I'm kind of following God. I'm kind of just doing what the world tells me to do. Yeah, I've lived a life where there's compromise. I've lived a life where I've been inconsistent with what I claim to believe. And this is why I love the book of Esther. 
This is why I love the story of Esther, because most of us in here, we're like Esther. We're not quite an atheist. We claim to love God, but again, if we were taken to court, there wouldn't be much evidence that we live what we claim to believe. There's times where we're compromising our faith, times that we're breaking commandments. We're not obeying God. We're not growing. We're not changing. And we get really good at excusing our, 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 our poor choices. We justify our sin. Well, it's not really that bad. There's other people doing horrible things, so it doesn't really matter that I just, this, this little sin, right? But see, in the book of Esther, the book of Esther is all about the gospel. It's all about the good news of the gospel. That God takes imperfect, broken, and sinful people like Esther and like you and like me. And God redeems us. And God redeems our actions. And he uses us for his greater good. That despite our foolishness, despite our brokenness, God is still sovereign and God is still in control. And he takes messed up people like you and like me. He takes the liars and the drunks and the perverted and the rebellious and the compromisers and the hypocrites and the Pharisees. And God gives us his grace. God gives us his favor and he redeems us and he transforms us and he uses broken people like you and I for his perfect purpose. How can you not be filled with hope because of Esther? Because that is most of our story. Amen. Esther is that? Teaches us so much stuff that we need to hear. Do you, rec- do you recognize that God walks with you even when you don't walk with him? I mean, here's Esther. She's not walking with God. She's not going to church. She's not going to Bible study. She's not. We don't see her praying. We don't ever see her worshiping God. We don't see her tithing. She's not walking with God at all. But God is walking with her every step of the way. His subtle hand of providence is working through her circumstances. Listen, that doesn't mean that just, that that doesn't excuse what we've done. That doesn't make it right. That doesn't mean we don't have to suffer our consequences. The fact that God uses our brokenness. We still have the consequences. In fact, Esther, she's going to be crowned queen by a bad man. God doesn't get her out of it. God doesn't get around it. God doesn't say, well, honey, honey, now that you're going to follow me, you don't have to be queen anymore. No, God doesn't do that. What God does, and God gets her through it. His invisible hand of providence takes her failure and weaves his redemptive purposes through it. That God gets her through the trouble that she's brought about herself. You recognize that's what God does in our life? He may not get you out of the trouble you're in, but God will get you through it. God will help you get through it. Joni Erickson Tata said this, and I think it fits this text, that God permits what he hates to accomplish what he loves. God permits what he hates to accomplish what he loves. I mean, here's what Satan wants to do. Satan wants to make a mess out of our life. He wants us to put all this temptation in front of us so we we fall to it. He wants us to fill us with guilt and shame. He wants us to make a mess of our lives, and then he wants to fill our, and tell our heart, listen, you're hopeless. You are beyond redemption. You are beyond God's usefulness. How many of you have been in that situation where you feel that from Satan? Your heart just becomes full of, man, I'm, I'm such a failure. Man, there's no way that God can do anything with me. Listen, I need you to hear this today, that God's grace is bigger than the one night 
God's grace is bigger than the one mistake. God's grace is bigger than a lifetime of mistakes. In fact, there's, a, there's an old Portuguese proverb that says, God writes straight with crooked lines. See, what happens is you and I, we're like Esther. All we bring to God are these crooked lines. I'm kind of trying to figure it out what it looks like to follow you, and I've just got this, this mess. And God takes the crooked lines and writes something straight and writes something beautiful. Listen, God doesn't take the good people because they're good and love them and and use them. God takes the broken people who will come to him and say, God, here's what I got. It's not much. It's this crooked line, but God, would you do something with it? And God uses the broken people. Three things as an opportunity to respond this morning. Esther chapter 2. Number one, would you remember who you are? You need to remember who you are. In fact, in 1 Peter, Peter, the apostle Peter, he writes, he says, you are elect exiles, which means that we belong to God, but we live in this world. Where we have a physical address in Yakima, but our citizenship is actually in heaven. That we, we belong first and foremost to God. Scripture says that we live in the world, but not of the world. Listen, some of us in here today, today, we need to remember who we are, that we belong to God. And today, I hope there's a challenge in front of you to remember who you are and to stop compromising. To stop compromising. To stop trying to live with one foot in both sides. That today, you would decide, I'm going to stop compromising, and I'm going to start living out my faith. I'm going to start standing up and standing out for what I believe in. But I'm not going to have both feet and both words. I'm going to plant my feet right here and say, I belong to God and I'm going to live my life that way. Remember who you are. You are God's son. You are God's daughter. Second response this morning. I want you to be filled with that hope. The hope of Esther. The hope of the gospel. That God's grace And God's providence is bigger than your worst sin and your worst mistake and your worst compromise. Amen to that. Hear that again. God's grace is bigger than your worst sin, your worst mistake, your worst compromise. That no matter how bad you've messed up, that God's grace is there to redeem you. That today you can come to him and you can repent. And you can, you can seek his forgiveness. You can seek his grace. And you can allow God to change you through the process of sanctification. That today you would say, God, I'm sorry. I'm going to follow you. And tomorrow you'd be a little bit more like him than you were today. And the day after that, you'd be a little bit more like him than you were, yes, the day after. You know what I'm trying to say. That every day that we would be growing and we would be changing and become a little bit more like him that you'd be filled with hope that whatever your situation is, God can redeem that. And God can use that in a beautiful way just like that.